This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Just because I'm poor doesn't mean that I love my child no less. The lady was like, she was taking the baby right then and there. I tried to find a regular lawyer at first where I had to pay them, but even with payment plans, I couldn't afford to do it. This is a story about how just being suspected can change your life and the difference a pro bono lawyer can make. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Kiara was living in Chicago, raising four sons, one of them a newborn, getting by on not much income, and putting all of her energy into taking care of her boys. The problem began when her youngest child was not gaining weight consistently. Kiara explains the situation. He was eight pounds, three ounces when he was first born. His weight went from eight pounds to maybe 11, 10 pounds in two months. But they wanted him to be 16 pounds. The nurse that came through the state said she just wants him to constantly gain. But she said that he was fair to thrive all because he was gaining weight slow. Not that he was not gaining weight, but that he was gaining slow. Kiera saw one medical professional after another going where she was told, and trying to follow their instructions. But then a call was made to the child abuse hotline. The confidential caller reported a suspicion that Kiera was responsible for her child's slow growth. That same night, Child Protective Services, a unit within the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services, or DCFS, sent an investigator to Kiera's home. A surprise visit. The investigator questioned Kiera, examined her infant, and met with her three older sons. The written report described them as healthy, happy, articulate, clean, and cared for. The baby was described as small, but active, cared for, and bonded to his mother. So DCFS comes out to your house and says, you don't have enough They said I didn't have enough for me. And then what happened next? They came back the next day and took my child. What was that day like? She put the phone on speakerphone. So everybody was like, well, this is a very serious allegation. So you're going to have to get him and get him out the house right now. We're going to have to put him in foster care. It must have been really hard. Yeah, it was crazy. It was the worst. So when she got there, um, I had to sign paperwork and everything. And the caseworker was all like, yeah, and do you agree to this safety plan? And I'm just standing there crying, like, you know, what are you talking about? Why do I got to agree to this safety plan? And um, she was like, because this is, you know, a serious allegation and we have to investigate, but we can't have him here. This took place 
without Kiera being able to consult a lawyer. And here are two important facts that a lawyer could have told Kiera. First, if DCFS had taken her child that night, they would have had to appear before a judge in a day or two and explain why this was appropriate. And Kiera would have been assigned a free lawyer. Second, by signing the papers, Kiera was giving up her chance to see a judge and her right to a lawyer. But she had no lawyer. Instead, it was just her, alone, negotiating with Child Protective Services. And Child Protective Services gave Kiera two choices. Either they would place the child in foster care, or she could find someone to care for him that night. She could find only one person who could help, a woman who lived an hour and a half bus ride across town. I had to go and bring baby formula. I had to go bring his medicine. I had to furnish his pampers, everything. How'd you get him home? They gave him back after two months. The woman called them, called the supervisors, and the supervisor called me and said, I need you to go get your son. Maybe it was because Kiera followed the safety plan they gave her, or maybe it was because her son was gaining weight. Whatever the reason, after two months, DCFS decided that Kiera's son could go home with her. And at that point, we might assume the story ends right here. But we would be wrong. We'll continue with this case after these words from the Practicing Law Institute. Did you know that PLI has a pro bono scholarship program? Through our scholarship and pro bono membership programs, you can easily access the training you need to provide effective representation. For more information on how to apply for a pro bono scholarship, visit pli.edu slash pro bono. So now the baby is home and Kiera's troubles are over. Or so we might think. There was another problem. Every state keeps a list a registry of people with a history of child abuse. This is called being indicated. This list exists to prevent people who are dangerous to kids from working or volunteering in schools, hospitals, group homes, and the like. But who gets put on that list? Who is indicated? Has everyone on the list been convicted of a crime or found to be an unfit parent in court? The answer is no. Kiera was put on that list. She was indicated. She had not been found to be an unfit parent, and she had not been convicted of anything. No court, no judge, no lawyer. This is where the Family Defense Center comes in. They specialize in helping families in this situation, and they connected Kiera with a pro bono lawyer named Crystal Knight. My name is Crystal Knight, and I'm a real estate attorney in northwest suburbs of Chicago. I also handle other types of matters, usually consumer disputes. I've handled some foreclosure defense matters, minor traffic and minor criminal. What's that like being a sole practitioner? I enjoy it. Uh, I work better on my own. Crystal started meeting with Kiera, negotiating with child welfare, and trying to make sense of the situation. She focused on the indicated finding. What does that mean to have an indicated finding against you? It means that you are listed on what they call the state central registry as a neglectful parent and that label and that registry listing remains 
with you on your record and is easily visible to anyone who you may be applying for a job with for 20 years. And that indicated finding, how does that haunt you going forward? Well, you would have difficulty obtaining certain types of jobs. If you wanted to work with children, that would just be completely out. There are many types of jobs that would be checking that and would not be interested in having you if you're on the registry. It was a pretty flimsy case on DCFS's part, I felt. And the subject matter kind of grabbed me. It involved an inorganic failure to thrive allegation. What does it mean in plain English? Uh, In plain English, it means that something about how the mother is feeding her child is causing the child to not grow properly or to not develop at the normal rate. Let's take a moment to review the sequence of events. Before Kiara's child was taken away, it all actually began with that confidential report, which started an investigation. So DCFS did an investigation. Do you know how the family came to their attention in the first place? The client brought her child to a, not a pediatrician, because a pediatrician is a physician, Mm -hmm. but a nurse practitioner. And the nurse practitioner was accusing her of not feeding the child adequately. And it just didn't ring true to me mm-hmm. from from my discussions with my client mm-hmm. it just didn't make any sense how she was coming to some of these conclusions she uh, was required to go through some counseling and support services and things like that educational mm-hmm. programs mm-hmm. and she complied because mm-hmm. she was terrified that mm-hmm. if she didn't Mm-hmm. that she would uh, never see her child again. Mm-hmm. So eventually the child was returned to her, but what she was left with at that point was an indicated finding mm-hmm. that she had neglected her child. So they took the baby away from mom, and they, and they gave mom a 20-year record as a neglectful parent without getting a second opinion. Correct. To challenge that neglect record, Crystal prepared for an expungement appeal hearing. Even though it has the word appeal in the name, it is actually an evidentiary hearing that is held before an administrative law judge. And it would be the first presentation of evidence that ever occurred in Kiera's child welfare case. When you begin a case in one of these expungement appeal hearings, uh, one of the first places you begin is with an investigative file. And that is a collection of paperwork Massed by DCFS in their investigation and their, you know, operating of the safety plan mm-hmm. or implementation of the safety plan. And um, looking through the file seemed flimsy to me. <laughs> <laughs> she related so well to her children. Mm-hmm. It just didn't fit mm-hmm. that she would do anything like this. Just her interaction with the baby didn't make any sense. So they indicated her for neglecting her child, but no physician ever gave an opinion? That's correct. Nurse practitioners are medical professionals, Mm -hmm. but they they never even got a second opinion from a second medical professional. That's correct. 
To support an indicated finding of non-organic failure to thrive, the law requires that a doctor diagnose the child. Crystal argued that Kiera had to be taken off the indicated list because no doctors who saw the baby gave that diagnosis. In fact, Crystal introduced testimony from the baby's pediatrician, as well as a home health nurse, that they did not believe Kiera was failing to feed her son. What did the judge decide? The judge actually decided that DCFS's case was insufficient because their entire allegation was not brought by a licensed physician, an MD. Hmm. It had been brought through only a nurse practitioner, and that was not legally sufficient according to the administrative rules. What was her reaction when you got the decision? She cried. She laughed. she, She was just over the moon about it. We made her day. (laughs) It took a judge to correct Kiera's record. Let's compare this with the criminal system. If someone is arrested and there is a trial, the court is where decisions are made that affect that person. But imagine a place where the police can arrest you, and even if they let you go without a trial, they can still write that you are guilty into your record. And suppose the only way to get that guilty record erased is to hire a lawyer and go to court. That's Kiera's situation. There was no hearing and no trial. Yet Kiera was still put on a list with serious life consequences. Then, after she was on that list, it was up to her to prove that she didn't belong there. And there's no public defender assigned in this situation. It was up to her to get her own lawyer. Crystal Knight was able to get Kiera's indication expunged, clearing her name and removing that stigma. This case is an example of the challenge presented by pro bono work in a specialized area. Crystal needed to rely on experts for help. Rachel Oconis Ruttenberg is the executive director of the Family Defense Center, which is focused on representing families in their interactions with the child welfare system. The Family Defense Center advocates justice for families in the child welfare system. Here in Illinois, we defend parents or caregivers um, in abuse or neglect investigations or with allegations um, or appeals for their findings. It means that we are helping a parent advocate for themselves when they are threatened of being separated from their child and the investigation is first ticking off. Often there is a finding, and that finding can be for a finding of child abuse or child neglect. Though any time, for the most part, that that person either wants to work with children or is working in a care setting or even volunteering, maybe soccer coach, that would come up on their background check and prevent them from being able to be offered that volunteer position or that job or whatever. They can't even enter their child's classroom on, for example, Halloween for a class party because of it. What is the standard of proof that the Child Welfare Agency has to meet in order to make an, an indicated finding? The investigator just makes the determination that it's an indicated finding and that the letter goes out and the person has to appeal it. It doesn't actually go in front of somebody. Like You don't actually have an opportunity to, to tell your side of the story. So you don't, it doesn't go in front of a judge. Just go, it, your supervisor has to look at it, right? Yes. Okay. This may sound harsh to a parent in Kiera's situation, but this whole chain of events is intended to protect children. 
the professionals in the chain are doing what the law requires of them. Doctors and nurses are required to report any suspicion of child neglect or abuse. Child Protective Services must follow up with an investigation. Within Child Protective Services, a supervisor reviews the results and decides whether to indicate the parent. However, the last person in this chain is not a judge, but a supervisor. But those are not lawyers. So child welfare personnel are basically making the decisions together about whether somebody should receive an indicated finding. And that person gets sent notice by mail that they have an indicated finding now and then have to affirmatively appeal that finding. Is there testimony at these administrative hearings? It is everything that like a mini trial would have. And it gives you the opportunity to practice all of these skills You're just in a conference room in front of an administrative law judge. So if a lawyer gets involved and appeals the finding and then they are successful, then what happens? Do they get a a notice in the mail? Yes. The family is is notified that that the appeal has been overturned, basically. And then does it show on their record that they they were indicated but and then it was overturned or does it get vacated or expunged? Then they need to put in for the expungement. No wonder pro bono lawyers are needed. There are so many legal requirements that the average person likely wouldn't succeed in an appeal. But Kiera couldn't afford to hire a lawyer. Most people in this situation can't. This is why pro bono is critical. When you enter the world of Child Protective Services, you are in an environment where a lawyer can make a difference at every step. It's really best they have a lawyer, and I don't think anybody who is a lawyer or anyone who even knows a lawyer would argue with that. Having an attorney in those early days is really important to making sure that the families are on the right track to be able to work with the child welfare agency in a way that's appropriate and and sometimes productive. If you're inspired to get involved in helping families navigate the child welfare system, you can become involved in pro bono family representation. Your community probably has a legal nonprofit that handles family defense. It might be associated with a law school. You can also reach out to your local legal services program. This kind of support from a nonprofit was something that Crystal Knight, as a solo practitioner, found particularly useful. They're in the shoes of mentors almost because they recognize that a lot of their volunteers have no experience whatsoever in this. They provide me with sample forms. They will assist me with getting things filed. Mm -hmm. They are always available to answer questions. Mm -hmm. We have a really great relationship with lots of solo practitioners. It's a significant portion of our pro bono uh, population. For solo practitioners and small law firms, It just adds to the types of matters they can take on. So they could take on a paying client for this type of work and know what they're doing. So it allows them that training. But in the midsize and bigger firms, we have partners come to us all the time to say, I got some new associates. I don't want them to handle XYZ until they take a family defense center case because it will teach them how to properly litigate or properly you know, go through the file and and have all these trial skills um, and, and litigation things that they want 
their associates to be very good at. And the Family Defense Center and its pro bono lawyers are good at litigation. They win 80% of their cases. This high success rate underscores the importance of a strong relationship between an organization and the pro bono attorney. They've been an incredible support to me. I probably would not be able to do what I'm doing without them. Mm -hmm. In fact, I know I wouldn't. I'm (laughs) certain of it. Crystal Knight is still taking these cases, still working to help families like Kiara's to stay stable and together. She was diligent and faithful and dedicated to trying to help me with what I needed, not just what she thought I would need, but what was best for us as a family. If you hadn't had a lawyer, what do you think would have happened? I would have lost my kids. They don't think. I, I know. If we're able to clear their names, if we're able to get them their kids back, um, they can move on in a safe way, in a stable way, then we've really done our job. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers helping those with limited access to justice. We also thank our production team, including Daniel Pinitz, Janet Siegel, J.C. Kinneman, and Robert Gennerke, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative legal training and continuing education. Since its founding more than 80 years ago, PLI has served the pro bono and public interest community. Lawyers working to expand access to justice can apply for complimentary access to attend PLI events or to watch any one of the 2,500 on-demand programs available on pli.edu. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum, visit pli.edu pro bono.